one changes a pattern of thought, habitual pattern of thinking, you know, addictive thinking is notoriously complicated and difficult thing to do. As we all know, liberating yourself from any addiction is so hard. And I had become addicted to this thought of suicide. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack. And today we are confronting a difficult and often taboo subject, suicide. Somewhere in the world, a person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. And after a pandemic lull, suicide rates are rising again in the United States. And it's not just amongst middle-aged white men. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide rates for youth have been on the rise in the US for the past 15 years. Today, it's the third leading cause of death for kids aged 10 to 19, and the second for young adults aged 20 to 24. What is going on? So today's forum is hopefully not to get us to throw our hands up in despair, but instead to help dispel some of the myths about suicide, and also to provide some advice about recognizing worrisome symptoms in a friend or loved one, and thus help us make a serious effort to remedy some of these lost lives. We're very fortunate to have two wonderful experts in the field today. Clancy Martin is a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. His most recent book, How Not to Kill Yourself, is a portrait of his own suicidal mind and his many attempts to end his life. Joining us from Scotland, we have Professor Rory O'Connor. He's a health psychologist at the University of Glasgow, where he leads the Suicide Behaviour Research Lab. His latest book is When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. So welcome to you both, gentlemen. Thank Thanks, you so much. to be here. So let's begin with you, Clancy. This book was a dramatic departure from your prior textbooks on philosophy and in it you decided to reveal some of your innermost secrets by telling your family uh, your students and the world at large that you had in fact attempted to end your life multiple times however in exposing the demons you also admitted to being quote very grateful that I'm incompetent at killing myself and I believe that almost every suicide can be prevented with access to good behavioral health systems. So tell me, what was the purpose uh, in writing this very brave book? Really, what happened was about five or six years ago, I was working on an essay with an editor about some time I'd spent in psychiatric hospitals. And at that time, someone he loved attempted suicide and he said, you know, I noticed Clancy that every time you've been in the psychiatric hospital, it's been for the same reason, uh, which is that you've tried to take your life. And I said, yeah, that's true. And he said, do you think you could shift your focus a bit towards uh, your suicide attempts uh, rather than just um, the problems you've run into in psychiatric hospitals and psychiatric care? And I said, yeah, of course. And when that piece came out, I started getting emails from all over the world of people saying roughly the same thing. I was Googling how to kill myself and your piece came up and I decided not to take my own life, not to make an attempt. And when you get 
emails like that as a, as a philosophy professor or as a writer, uh, it's not the sort of thing you really ever expect to have happen in your life when suddenly people are reaching out to you and saying, oh my goodness, your, your story has saved my life and it makes a big impact on you. And I realized that I had only told a little part of the story and that it might be helpful to people to tell the whole story. And so that's what I did. And it turned out that the person that helped most of all um, was me. Uh, and it had this profound effect writing this book on my own suicidal ideation, which had continued all the way up to um, about, honestly, about six months or so ago, I was still in a daily way wrestling with the urgent thought of trying to take my own life. And shortly before and then following the book coming out, it's, it's, a, it's, it's amazing, frankly, to report, but this thought has just been, seemed to be dispelling. It still occurs to me, but not with the the old teeth that it had and the old pole that it had. Now it occurs to me and I can just sort of see it there and let it go. So you kind of exercised it by going public. I think that's, yeah, part, surely part of what happened. And I think part of it also may be that I confronted some things in my own life, some sources of self-loathing that I'd never really looked at carefully before. But then as I was writing them through, I had to really examine them and see them also not only from my own eyes of a kind of driven by suicidal self-loathing, but imagining how they might be viewed by others. And when you, when you sort of take a look at yourself from that external perspective, you start seeing some of these things a little bit differently, I think. I always tell my students and anyone who comes to me in crisis, imagine if the people that you are surrounded by are going around with these same terrible feelings of self-loathing that you have. You can see about them that they're good people whose lives are important and that they should stick around and that you don't want them to take, take their own lives. Maybe you could have that same recognition about yourself, you know, that you too are important and your life is worth saving and you can <clears throat> be a force for good in the world. And so that may have been part of it as well. So you had a history of suicides uh, in your immediate family growing up, and you said you still live in this kind of perpetual ambivalent state. So how have you managed this daily battle along with this history of dealing with alcoholism uh, so that now you feel in a better place? Well, I think for me, what had to happen is I had to recognize that I had developed a pattern of thought over the course of many years, that suicide was a good idea. And how one um, changes a pattern of thought, habitual pattern of thinking, you know, addictive thinking is notoriously complicated and difficult thing to do, as we all know, liberating yourself from any addiction is so hard. And I had become addicted to this thought of suicide. But how uh, it came to happen, I think, was um, recognizing, making the shift from thinking that suicide was a good thing to thinking that suicide was a bad thing, and also developing kind of a list of strategies so that when I was in a bad place, I had ways I could deal with the, the fight or flight, the panicky feeling that characterizes, I think, so many people's feelings right before an attempt. 
Well, we're going to get to those in a little bit from both of you. I think they're very important. Um, you said you wanted to dispel some misconceptions in the book about what a suicidal person looks like. And you yourself said it's not just this narcissistic sort of selfish person, as I actually thought. I'm quoting you now. And many others presume this person. So what do you say to that? And also, what do you say to the students in your philosophy class about the profile of this suicidal person? Well, the first thing that I want um, people to know is that if you've had someone in your life die by suicide, you should not be blaming yourself for that. Probably you are one of the reasons that person stayed around for as long as they did. Um, they were probably fighting the thought of suicide for years. And, and it was thanks to you and other loved ones around them that they managed to, to delay their death by suicide for as long as, as they did. So that's the first thing. Don't blame yourself if you have someone in your life who's died by suicide. You aren't to blame. The second thing I want to say is that we see people take their own lives, you know, from every uh, walk of life, you see people uh, take their own lives. And when someone like Anthony Bourdain takes his own life and we think he's got everything going for him, if only I had a life like Anthony Bourdain, I would have no problems, we tend to think, well, no. Once we actually take a close look at the life of Anthony Bourdain, we realize he was struggling with the thought of suicide and and suicidal behaviors, what we sometimes call parasuicidal behaviors, you know, ways of sort of killing yourself slowly. We sometimes also refer to these as deaths of despair. He'd been struggling with this for years. And so it's important when um, you're thinking about people around you to recognize that anyone you may know, uh, you may know lots of, you, you surely do know lots of people who struggle with the thought of suicide, but that doesn't mean that um, they are going, they have disclosed this to you or ever reached out to you. They could be completely surprised and unexpected people. And then what sort of follows from that and is so important, and I know Rory can speak to this more intelligently than I can, is that there should be no shame, no stigma, no self-accusation directed at oneself because of having these suicidal thoughts, and especially not um, for those who have made an attempt. I know for me, the fact that I had tried to kill myself was such a source of shame and self-reproach, which further exacerbated my self-loathing and made it that much more likely that I would make another attempt. And um, that's a real shame. The, the thing, what I sometimes call one of the paradoxes of suicidal thinking is you can get yourself into a place where you think that you are so ashamed of the fact that you are willing to do this thing that you consider to be such a selfish thing, taking your own life, that you think this is further proof of the fact that you should take your own life because you are such a selfish person who would be willing to take his own life despite being surrounded by people who need you. This proves that you are actually doing more harm to those people than good. And you should in fact, remove yourself from their lives and you'd be better and they'd all be better off without you. That's how paradoxical and self-punishing the suicidal mind can get. And I indeed did hold that belief um, 
for many, many years. I was sure that the people who loved me would be much better off without me, including my own children. And uh, so if you are feeling that way, let me tell you, you're, you're mistaken in that view. It's the, they are not better off without you. They want you around. And don't be ashamed of the way you are feeling. It's so many people feel that way. The, the World Health Organization that estimates that 10% of the world population suffers from suicidal ideation. And that statistic is surely low because of um, the stigma and taboo that surround the desire and to, to take one's own life and of course, making an attempt. Uh, so, and that gives us 700, 800 million people in the world who are thinking about taking their own lives. And if, if we recognize that the statistic is low, maybe more than a billion people, you're suffering from a very common problem. And don't be ashamed of it. You're listening to How Not to Kill Yourself, a candid discussion about suicide between Professor Clancy Martin, philosopher and author of the book Describing His Own Suicidal Mind, with Professor Rory O'Connor, President of International Association for Suicide Prevention. So Rory, let's move over to you. Your book, uh, When It Is Darkest, is quite an amazing combination of its personal, your revelations about your own life um, and, and full of research. And you mentioned that you'd been bereaved twice uh, by suicide, but you make a point of saying that the actual impact of that suicide is like a social bomb exploding. Tell us about how you dealt with that grief and a bit about that knock-on effect. Sure. When I got into the field of suicide research and suicide prevention, there was this very famous statistic which was coined, I think, by a guy called Edwin Schneidman, who was a founding father of suicide prevention in the United States, set up the American Association for Suicidology. I think he was the person who first came up with this idea of for every person who dies by suicide, and he's based on his clinical experience, um, there's about six people affected. But then more recently, we've always sort of known that's, that that wasn't grounded in, in empirical evidence. And then more recently, I think it was in 2018 or 17, 18, Julie Carell, a clinical psychologist in, in Kentucky. And basically what she estimated was that for every person who dies by suicide, on average, up to 135 people may know that person, be exposed to that suicide and potentially, potentially affected. Now, of course, the overwhelming majority of those people will not be bereaved in the traditional sense of those close to the individual. But the thing that we should always bear in mind is that we, none of us can ever predict the impact of a, of a single suicide on those around them. And so the, over the years, the number of people that I've come across who somebody distant in their work context or somebody distant in their friendship context died by suicide. And that really was like a social bomb going off for them. And for many of them, it could be a case of what, what when a suicide occurs, so what, what it does is obviously when we try and process that as individuals, none of us know what's going on, as, as, as Clancy said, so whatever the, the estimates are, whatever the World Health Organization, 10% of people having suicidal thoughts. So we don't know that for any person who is exposed to suicide, that could just make them feel really vulnerable and recognize it, it shines a light on their own vulnerability, their own suicidal thoughts. And so, so it's really important when we look at the ripples of suicide, and, and that's why it's so important to have these conversations, is that suicide affects 
everybody and anybody. And again, there's no stereotypical face of somebody who's suicidal. It could be any one of us. And similarly, those who are affected by it, the, the effect can be devastating as the ripples continue to whatever cascade out. And yes, in, in my book, I what I tried to do, I wrote this book over during COVID. And, and what I tried to do was, and when it's darkest, is synthesize the work that I've been doing at that stage for 25 years of doing research in the field of suicide and been involved in a lot of policy and advocacy work. Yeah, so when I think about my work, yes, the research is important, but what's probably more important has been my own direct experience of suicide. And so when I first started research in the field, I wasn't directly affected. I hadn't lost somebody close to me but to suicide. But the sad reality is, and as Clancy said, as we get older, all of us will know somebody at some stage who's died by suicide. But for me, it's been particularly poignant because one of the, the two people who were really close to me who died by suicide was the person who brought me into the field of suicide research and suicide prevention. And so, I, so one day in the summer of 1994, I got a call from Noel who basically said to me, who was a professor in my department, saying there's a possibility of doing a PhD on suicide. And I jumped at the chance. I've been previously doing work on depression. And then little did I know that some years later, he would lose his own struggle and end his life. And, and I often think back to, why did, they, why did they ask me? Why did that happen? And that sort of role of serendipity. And also then one of my closest friends I worked with and uh, I did my PhD with Claire and I talk a lot about Claire in the book and she, um, and she lost her fight to live in 2008 and and those two experiences just devastated me Claire's in particular because I was really close to Claire she was very close to my family and I was just devastating it remains devastating it remains devastating and I think that's the thing for us to remember isn't is that I'm speaking as a friend and a colleague who's lost somebody to suicide imagine the devastation our family members and, and, and loved ones. It's really, really important that we have these conversations and crucially, crucially, we provide support to those who are bereaved as well as, of course, those who are struggling and um, with thoughts of suicide. So maybe you could talk us through about some of the myths about suicide. Okay, so again, when I started out in this field in the 1990s, we still were of the belief that if you ask somebody whether they were suicidal, it would plant the idea in their head. And, and actually, you still hear that today. And, and actually, at least 14 myths, which are on the, in the book, I first gave my first public lecture I ever gave in Belfast in Northern Ireland, because although I live in Scotland, I am Irish. And the first talk I gave in Belfast, public audience, I had 14 myths. And then when I was writing the book during COVID, whatever, many, many years later. And actually, it was quite depressing on one level because what it became to be very clear is these 14 myths all persist today as he did 20, 25 years ago, but they're less common. So I think that's the, the clint of light that I take from that. But then, so number four, there's no evidence at all that a plant's idea in someone's head. Indeed, there's evidence for the opposite. So Marty Gould, who's a really good pal in, in the United States at Columbia and the US. Maddie's done work on this and Maddie has shown, was the first person to show that actually asking somebody these questions could actually be the start of a life-saving conversation. And people who are asked that question are more likely to get the help and support that they need. So I would encourage anybody, if you're concerned about somebody around you, 
please just ask them directly. Just ask them directly. Are you feeling suicidal? Don't don't use euphemisms. Just be direct. And as long as you're compassionate and show a sense of common humanity and non-judgmental and validate how they're feeling, that that's that must be difficult for you if the answer is yes. You're not going to do any harm. That person will be so relieved and so grateful that you have been honest with them and just honestly asked them this question. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Rory. Great concept. I was hoping you'd pitch in there. <laughs> so, so maybe do another one and we can do a double act again. So I'll say my bit and then Clancy can add his as well. So the number eight, suicidal behavior is motivated by attention seeking. I think that's an important one, again, because it speaks to a point that Clancy made earlier about stigma and that we need to try and smash the stigma around suicide and suicidal behavior. And too often you still hear that if somebody engaged in suicidal behavior but didn't die, it's so, oh, it must have been, it was only attention seeking. And it's usually a preface with only attention seeking. Now, I totally agree that what the person's trying to do is draw attention to their pain and often they can't see any other way of managing that pain or of communicating that pain. But it's not about attention seeking in the pejorative way that we tend to describe it. It's about attention needing. And I think that's what's much more important. Over to you, Clancy. Well, I just wanted to, first of all, completely agree with that. I still hear from people, even since this book has been published, people write to me, mostly parents saying, you know, could you help our child has is in this situation is suicidal and we we don't know whether her um, suicidal threats are just attention seeking or if we should take them seriously. And it's just it amazes me that we haven't done a better job of educating people that and the, the best predictor of a suicide attempt is someone saying, I am thinking about suicide. You know, it's so common sense and yet people still don't understand it. And unfortunately, the best predictor of a death by suicide is um, someone making a suicide attempt. So there's just a, there's a, a clear line here when someone reaches out and says, I'm worried about myself. I'm thinking about harming myself. This is is not attention seeking behavior. It's a cry for help in in the in the cri de cour sense. They're in acute mental pain and they're reaching out and they're saying, "I really need some help. Please help me." And if uh, you can, as Rory says, so important not to judge this person, not to try to solve this person's problems, not to tell them that suicide is right or wrong, but rather just to listen to them with an open and compassionate heart, and you can save that person's life. And it's, you know, as Rory has been by implication teaching us over the, over the past few minutes, one of, if not the best medicine we know of, and Edwin Schneidman insisted on this as well, medicines we know of for treating suicidal ideation and reducing the likelihood of a suicide attempt is just talking with another human being who will listen to you and cares to listen to you with compassion. So I have a friend who's one of the world's, perhaps the world's preeminent translator of Sanskrit literature. And he said to me when he read my book, he said, I'm so glad to read this because I know when I attempted suicide, people say, oh, it's just an attempt to get attention. But when I woke up in the hospital, I wasn't relieved that I had survived. I was absolutely gutted that I had survived. And this is the experience of so many people who attempt suicide, where you wake up and you're not relieved to have lived. You feel like 
you wish you had succeeded. So if someone reaches out to you, please take them seriously. And if you're feeling that way yourself, you know, uh, it's hard sometimes to reach out. But if you reach out to a person and they don't respond, reach out to someone else. There's been times when I was feeling suicidal and the only person I could text was my roofer. And I wrote, I texted him and I said, I'm having a really lousy day. How's your day going? And he texted me back and he said, hey, tell me more about why you're having a lousy day. And just that much lightened the pressure, it eased the pain, it removed the blinders, and I was able to transition out of that moment of crisis. That last point about reaching out, the refer example, and again, a number of times over the years, I've heard similar sorts of stories of that, that those seemingly small connections can be life-saving. No, and so those of you maybe who haven't been suicidal and you're trying to understand maybe supporting somebody who is suicidal, it's really important to remember that suicidal thoughts are not permanent. They come in waves of intensity. And that sort of pattern of suicidal thinking is unique to everybody who has suicidal thoughts. But what we do know is in that peak of high intensity, if somebody maybe reached, reached out or connected towards you, or you get a sense of something that basically interrupted those suicidal thoughts or disrupted those suicidal thoughts. That's genuinely life-saving stuff. And again, I talk a lot about this in the book, in my book about people I've met along my journey who have somebody just smiled at them yeah. and they felt a sense of a worthiness when they were feeling worthless. Because remember so many people who are suicidal, that, that rock bottom self-esteem feel worthless. And actually that nobody would care if they lived or died. So that those small sort of glimpses of light in the darkness is so important. And that's was where that's part where the title of my book comes from. That's when it's darkest. And we're trying to help people when it's darkest. And in terms of the, the other bit you mentioned about people disclosing suicidal thoughts. Again, too often there's this myth that if somebody tells you they're suicidal, that means they're not serious. That's utterly untrue. And it's a myth. And, and the point is that, 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 that think about how difficult it must have been for somebody to say that, to reach out. So take every utterance of suicide seriously and every sort of act of self-harm or self-injury seriously, because again, that person is in need, is in need of help and support. I sometimes worry. I always give people this advice and I sometimes worry it's a little corny, but I think it's so important. If you're thinking about suicide, you know, the door is always open, as the Stoics said, you can always do it tomorrow. So put it off for just a day. Yeah, yeah. Go for a walk. And then there's one other thing that I would like, I always encourage everyone to do. And I would like to encourage you to do if you're listening to this now, and you're having these kinds of thoughts. Give someone as you're out on that walk, give someone a smile who isn't expecting a smile. And when you do that, if you smile at someone, even though maybe it's very difficult for you to smile at someone, if you force yourself to smile at someone, one that's just scientifically proven that smiling makes you feel a tiny bit better. So forcing yourself to smile is probably a good idea. But more importantly, when you smile at someone who isn't expecting a smile, suddenly there's this little bit of goodness in the world that didn't exist before. And that wouldn't ever have existed if it weren't for you. You just created that little bit of extra goodness in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't have been there if you had taken your own life. 
So by stalling even for a day, you've proven that you are worth something, that you are someone that we need to have around, that you can, you can create good. So this is just something that I always say to people who are in crisis, and, and um, I was so grateful to you for mentioning that smile. That's another good reason to go for a walk, is someone might smile at you unexpectedly, and you're like, okay, you feel a little bit better. Your, your, your train of thought is, is uh, derailed. As Rory very helpfully points out, suicidal thoughts, like all thoughts, they come and go and they change. I hope a lot of people have gotten inspiration and calm and help from hearing both somebody who's walked the road and someone who spent 25 years or more helping other people walk the road. So I'd like to thank our two great speakers today uh, for the valuable insight and advice, Professors Clancy Martin and Rory O'Connor. Cambridge Forum is made possible through generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Cambridge Community Foundation, and you guys. So if you want to give, you can go to the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all again for joining us. Thank you.